0: Here's what John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my Son." The word of the Lord. Praise Thanks, Peter. Well, Advent, as we've been reminded twice already, is the time of preparation, of waiting. And here we are. It's Sunday, we've got 27 days until Christmas. We do weird things at Christmas, don't we? We we cut down trees, put them on trains, bring them into our living rooms. Put lights on them, tinsel in California, that reminds us that it does snow somewhere. (laughs) Uh, We eat sugar cookies that are so good and we would never allow ourselves such at other times of the year. But but the whole thing um, is about anticipation, about waiting. And we're going to spend four Sundays in these two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, two chapters that, that bring to a conclusion the whole Bible. The climax of the whole story. Francis Schaefer, a guy from uh, yesteryear, he, he used to say the Bible is the best book because it's the only book that begins at the beginning and goes all the way to the end. And he was right. And what we're going to see today, we're going to see that we were... And we are made for God. And we are homesick for God. And John writes using exuberant, luxurious language. Uh, we might call it apocalyptic literature where there's, there's fire from heaven and bowls of wrath and prophets and beasts who come out of the sea and, and a lake of fire and, and Satan is bound with a chain. Very exuberant. But the language testifies to our yearning for God. It, it shows us where all history is headed. It tells us how things will work out under God's sovereign control. We are waiting for a time when God will dwell with us, unmediated, unhindered presence with God. Even if we don't know it, we are waiting for God. Now, in 1969, most of us were enamored of Led Zeppelin if we were alive and the Beatles and and other bands, but did you ever hear of Peggy Lee? Uh, I was way too cool for Peggy Lee at the time She was a jazz singer and she put out a song that was a bit of a hit I wonder if you've ever heard of it. It's called is that all there is? Have you heard of it? She spoke most of the song very clearly I remember when I was a little girl our house caught on fire I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced through the burning building out onto the pavement And I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames And when it was all over I said to myself is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? And then the chorus If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that is all there is. And when I was 12 years old, my daddy took me to the circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was over I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? Well if that's all there is, if that's all there is my friends, then let's keep dancing, let's break out the booze, let's have a ball if that's all there is. And then I fell in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. We'd take long walks by the river or just sit for hours gazing into each other's eyes. We were so much in love. Then one day he went away. And I thought I would die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? Well, if that's all there is, Well, I know what you're saying, my friends. You must be saying to yourself, if that's the way she feels about all of this, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no. Not me. I'm not ready for the final disappointment because I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you that when that final moment comes, and I'm breathing my last breath breath, I'll be saying to myself is that all there is? is that all there is to life? if that's all there is my friends let's keep dancing let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is not exactly top 40 material dark but wouldn't we agree that even for believers there's a note of truth in the song I mean, doesn't that song speak to our hearts a little bit I mean when we're children we wait for Christmas and it comes and it's so exciting but it's over and then we wait for our birthday and mom lets us have the corner piece of the cake with all the frosting and we get a little bit sick but it's worth it and then we have to wait another year and then the grown-ups start talking to us about college or university, and and we finally get the thick envelope and off we go to college. And before we know it, people are asking us, what are you gonna do when you get out of college, young lady? It's over. And then we yearn for that great job, and we, we find it is great and it pays well, but it's a job. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in the world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or take up some subject that excites us These are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Lewis says, I'm not now speaking of what would normally be called an unsuccessful marriage or a bad holiday or a learned career. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There's something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent. The chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but something evades us. Church, every experience in life, every hope, every joy, every satisfaction, every vacation, every adventure... Every great novel, as good as it is, will leave us longing for more. Uh, I like what Aldous Huxley said, there comes a time when one asks even of Shakespeare and Beethoven, is that all? (laughs) There is a yearning in us for more. Revelation 21 gives us a picture of what we are waiting for. Again, we're going to spend four weeks here, so we're not going to see everything in the passage that's there. That's going to take a while to tease out. But I want to dwell on, uh, I guess I gave it away, I want to look at three words. The word new, the word dwell, and the word "sun." First, the word new. It comes up again and again, three times in fact. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all things new the former things have passed away. It's new. Well, we have to ask new in what sense? John could have used two different words for new. Uh, Neos in Greek, which means new, or kinos, which means new. But there's a difference between the two words. Uh, Neos new means your friend calls you and says, hey, I got a new car. Why don't you come over and see it? Okay, I'll come right now. And you go over to see your friend's car and he has a 10-year-old Ford Fiesta. And you realize he replaced his 18-year-old Subaru. So the car is new in one sense. It's, it's new like the other car and it's going to wear out and it's going to need to be replaced. Kinos means something much more fulfilling. I'm just quoting from a theological dictionary by Gerhard Kittel. Kainos refers to what is new in nature, different from the usual, impressive, better than the old, superior in value or attraction. Here, your friend says, Hey, I got a new car. I got rid of my bike. I've never had a car. Come see it. And you go over and you see some, you know, Mercedes 200 SL Something or other. Now that is something new. Completely different from the bike that he used to pedal around town. Church, everything about the new heaven and the new earth is new. It's new, new. The former things have passed away. We have much to look forward to. All of us. Johnny Erickson Tata, who spoke for our church years ago. She's been in a, in a quadriplegic state in a wheelchair for more than 40 years. and She says this, I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, no feeling from my shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Light and bright and clothed in righteousness. Powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that this gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? One of our problems in Santa Barbara is that we look out the window in late November, and it could be December or January, and we say, I'm not sure I really need a new anything. This is pretty good. Friends, God has things in store for us that we cannot imagine. Word number two, dwell. Most important word in the passage. It's a one-word climax to the whole Bible. Somebody says, what's the climax of the Bible? Just say, well, I got one word to tell you. Dwell. Verse three, one word. The word comes up both as a noun and as a verb. Literally, the word is Tent. So verse 3, we could translate, Behold, the tent of God is with human beings, and He will tent with them. What does that mean? Now think with me about the big picture of the whole Bible. God creates the heavens and the earth, and in the earth there's this garden, and He puts all of humanity in the garden. There's only two of them, but that's all humanity. And the, 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 the picture is that God is going to dwell with Adam and Eve in the garden, and they haven't one command, they're going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And again, the picture is that this garden is going to eventually expand to fill the whole earth. Well, you know the story, it doesn't go so well. They choose to disobey God, they rebel against God, And now they're alienated from one another, they realize they're naked, they sew clothes for themselves, no Amazon in those days. And we read in verse 8 of chapter 3, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're hiding out from God. Humanity now continues to live on earth, but God, well, God and his presence move back to heaven. And we have all kinds of pictures that show this. Remember when Jacob takes a nap one day and he has a dream of a ladder up to heaven and the angels are descending and ascending? Well, the clear imagery is that God is up in heaven and Jacob is down on earth. Or when Israel crosses the Red Sea and they go to Mount Sinai and the the Lord wants to make a covenant with them and to do so, He, God, has to come down on Mount Sinai. Distance, hostility, animosity. And the people say to Moses, don't let God do that again. If you do, we will die. And the later biblical writers begin to talk about God as the God of heaven. Or sometimes the Psalms speak of God looking down from heaven. Distance, separation, alienation. So Isaiah will say in chapter 59, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not here. And so we turn the pages of the Bible and, and we begin to hear rumors of God one day coming to dwell with us again. There's a longing for and a waiting for and a promise of that dwelling to come to us again. So as Israel's crossing the wilderness, Exodus chapter 29. Verses 45 and 46, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. You see the dwelling promise? And there are, we won't take the time to look at it, but there's all kinds of similarities between the way the land of promise is described and the way the garden of Eden was described. This is going to, again, be a wonderful dwelling of God with his people. I will make my dwelling among you, Leviticus 26, and my soul shall not abhor you. Again, we're going to be back together. Well, along the way in the wilderness, Israel is instructed to build a, a tabernacle, a tent. And that's going to be where God dwells. And there's elaborate instructions about how to build it. They do build it. It is dedicated. Fire comes down. Smoke comes down. People have to get out. The Spirit of God is there. And now God lives in the midst of Israel. So they make their way all the way to the Jordan River. They cross and they go into the land of promise and everything is perfect. Right? Huh. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho. How do you sing about the second battle of Ai? Second battle. The land has not even been conquered. And some guy named Achan takes some of the idols of the Canaanites. And we read in Joshua 7:1, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So much for harmonious dwelling. Israel never completes the conquest. Israel moves into a period of judges, 400 years if you like, which is really a period of tribal warfare, bitterness, jealousy, bloodshed. Finally, they get a king, they get a second king, they get a third king. The third king, whose name is Solomon, builds a permanent replica of the tabernacle. It's called what? Temple. And now God is going to live in Jerusalem in the temple. Well, yeah, it's good. When they dedicate the temple, the same thing happens fire and smoke, and and the Spirit of God comes, and the people have to get out because it's so terrifying. So now God lives in Jerusalem, in Israel. It's all good. But wait a minute. The tavern, the temple is, is a series of rectangles that are designed to keep people away. So you've got the court where anyone can go and you've got the court where the women can go and you've got the court where the men can go and the priests. And in the inner sanctum, you have what's called the Holy of Holies, 15 by 15 by 15. It's a perfect cube. And only one priest goes in once a year on the Day of Atonement. He goes in and he gets out as quickly as possible. Dwelling, yes, but distance. God is near and far at the same time. Well, that temple stays in Israel 400 years. It's so good. And then the Babylonians come and they utterly destroy the temple, they take the artifacts back to Babylon, the the holy vessels and the temple is destroyed. About 70 years later, the temple has been rebuilt and it is dedicated 516 BC there's no fire, there's no smoke there's no spirit, it's just a building so much so that when Um, Pompey, the Roman general came in 63 BC he he went where people were afraid to go he goes into the holy place and he tells us through Herodotus that it was empty well 70-ish years later maybe a little more someone's born and John says this is the eternal Word of God who became flesh. And in verse 14 of John's Gospel, the Word became flesh and what's the next word? Dwelt. You know what the Greek word is? It's tent. The Word became flesh and tented among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. It's good. But, but to our surprise as we're reading the story, we think, Wow, well, now God is dwelling with us but then he goes and gets crucified. But then, three days later, he's raised. Okay, the the word that became flesh has now been raised from the dead and he's dwelling with us. But then, he ascends to the Father. Oh my gosh. But then, ten days after that, he comes back in the person of the Holy Spirit. And now, get this, so important. Now the dwelling place of God is not in Jerusalem, but in His children, in His believers. And Jerusalem goes global, does it not? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, all the way to Rome and Spain and and Santa Barbara. So God, again, dwells with His people. End of story, right? Well, wait a minute. After Pentecost, with the Holy Spirit, we are still waiting. We are still waiting. The world is still fallen. Sometimes God seems very present. Sometimes He seems very absent. We have wars and rumors of wars. We have evil potentates and cancer and typhoons and racism. And cars in Wisconsin that run over Christmas parades. And violence in our cities and the darkness of my own heart and church splits and denominational splits and marital splits and inflation and broken relations and pandemics with new names all the time like COVID and Delta and Omicron. Friends, we are still waiting. We're waiting for a time when I will stop crying. We're waiting for a time when my body will not betray me. We are waiting for a time when my friends will not betray me. We are waiting for a time when I will not betray my friends. I like what Henry Ward Beecher said in the 19th century. Our yearnings are homesickness for heaven. Our sighings for God are are signs for God. Just as children that cry themselves to sleep away from home and sob in their slumber, not knowing that they sob for their parents, the soul's inarticulate moanings are affections yearning for God. Now, John describes life in the New Jerusalem as we have never known it. This is a place where we will never say, is that all there is? Rather, we will be bowled over again and again by the presence of God, and we will find ourselves saying, not is that all there is, but rather, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We will see and we will want to keep seeing. We will experience and we will experience deeper. We will for eternity find ourselves learning more about God, about His beauty, His sovereignty, His majesty, His grace, His goodness. So, let's see if I can illustrate. Uh, My dad died a year ago October. So, I guess I'm 14 months out without a father on earth. But what a guy, my dad was 16 and he went on what was in those days called a church social in Los Angeles and he held the hand of my mom who's here this morning. They were 16 years old. I don't think they were apart for more than about three hours. Uh, They got married when they were 18. They were married for 72 years and they had two wonderful kids. Now, here's the deal. I knew my dad for a long time. I was with him just a couple of days before he died. He lived in Santa Barbara and very, very close family. Uh, He grew bigger in my eyes, not smaller as I got to know him. I never grew bored of my father. It's kind of like Mark Twain. You know, he said, well, when I was 12, my dad didn't know very much. But when I was 20, he'd learned a whole lot. Well, that's, that's kind of my story. I, I never had that rebellion stuff, but uh, I always loved my dad, but he, he, just, he just grew in my estimation. And I, the more I spent time with him, the more I wanted to spend time with him. He was truly one of my best friends, along with my mom. Do you know that you will never get bored with God? You, you, you won't say, gosh, I've been here 10,000 years, been with Jesus. I think I'll go over and talk to Augustine for a while. <laughs> you're not going to do that. Sam Storms put it like this, heaven is not one grand momentary flash of excitement followed by eternity of boredom. Heaven is not going to be an endless series of earthly reruns. (laughs) There will be a new episode of divine grace every day a new revelation every moment of some heretofore unseen aspect of the unfathomable complexity of God's divine compassion. We will never grow bored. Well, one more word. Verse 7, the word son. The one who conquers will have this heritage, I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one who conquers comes up about 12 times in Revelation to refer to those who persevere to the end. Believers who are willing to wait. Believers who all along were, knew that they were destined for a better country, for an everlasting city. God says, I will be his God... And he will be my son. Well, maybe, to some in the room, that sounds a little bit too gender-specific. Maybe we're even offended. Some Bible translators are. The New Living Translation and the New International Version turn son into a plural. I will be their God, and they will be my children. But church, the Bible wasn't written in 2021. It was written in the ancient Near East. And when God says, He will be my son, it is a metaphor. We don't like it. It's not the way we live. But in the ancient Near East, sons got a better deal than daughters. It's just the way it was. Sons got trained by their dad for the vocation. Sons had a special place in the family. Sons and only sons got the inheritance In Christ, we all become sons of God. The news couldn't be better. I like what Chelsea Stanley says. She says, women in the first century understood sonship and all that it entailed. So hearing that God had given both brothers and sisters together, the status of sons would have blown them away. God stepped in and radically declared that men and women are one in Christ, equally privileged, equally exalted, co-heirs together in His kingdom. Both men and women receive the full inheritance through faith in Him. So, what are we waiting for? Behold, the dwelling of God is now with humanity and they will be his people, plural in the Greek. They will be his peoples from every tribe, nation, tongue. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, do you remember a few minutes ago, we talked about this little box, the Holy of Holies, 15 by 15 by 15, a perfect cube. That's where God lived. But... But this new Jerusalem, this new city, it's really big. But it has the same shape as the Holy of Holies. A perfect square. But not 15 by 15 by 15. This one is 1,380 miles by 1,380 miles by 1,380 miles. The cube The New Jerusalem is where God dwells. And did you notice the city has a dress on? Adorned for her husband. The bride of Christ is made ready and Christ dwells with his people. Just down the page in Revelation 21, there was no temple. Because Jesus Christ is there. He is the temple Chapter 22, verse 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead. So I have a question for us, just about done. Are you one of his sons? So important. We do not become sons by church membership. As important as church membership is, very important. But that's not how we become sons. We do not become sons through baptism. As important as baptism is, very important. We do not become sons by attending church services. As important as that is. We do not become sons by improving our morals. Sonship comes through faith and through faith alone, through new birth. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, well, you'll be one of his sons. You will be saved. Church, we were made for God We are waiting for the time when God will dwell with us, unmediated, unhindered presence with God and the enjoyment of God. That's what we are looking forward to. Do you remember how C.S. Lewis ended all the Narnia stories? And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last... They were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth had ever read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.